Welcome to The Political Notebook. I'm your host, Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. On this week's episode of The Political Notebook, we're talking about the President of the United States. And generally, I don't find it interesting to talk about the latest Trump outrage. To me, he's, uh, he's crude, he's mean, he's ignorant to the details of any policy. He's a compulsive liar and entirely self-centered, and we, we already know those things. So I don't see the point in talking about the latest example of what we already know. Maybe some people would say that ignoring his behavior normalizes Trump, enables it, but I think he just thrives on attention, and the more people are talking about him, it seemed like that's better for him. Um, but he does and says things that almost force people to respond to him, and I want to talk about that. Uh, the impact Trump has as a force in politics, whether the rules apply to him, how others have responded to him, and what the strategies will be, what are the strategies right now into the future of other politicians moving forward. And uh, we'll start with this. You're, you're a political writer and a commentator. How much attention do you pay to his tweets and to the coverage over his comments? It's impossible to ignore, and I um, write about both policy and politics, and certainly uh, Trump's tweets and the reactions to them uh, are what American politics today are all about. They're unavoidable. I try to the extent I can, however, um, to put that aside when I'm writing about policy, and uh, I think that is a distinction that is rarely done. Uh, with Trump, uh, I think uh, you're either with him or against him, and you judge him through that prism uh, rather than, as I try to do, uh, to pick through the policies that he pursues to identify those uh, that I think are good, those that I think are bad, and those that I think are somewhere in between. Is that hard to do? And how much damage do you think some of these tweets do? Just a couple days ago, he tweeted, he retweeted extremely anti-Muslim videos, people are calling it propaganda even, fear-mongering about a religious group. We stand for religious freedom in this country. That's what, that's the First Amendment. That's how damaging do you think that is? And is it... Is that difficult for you to separate the policy from the extremely un-American tweets like that? Um, no, because I don't think Trump represents a threat to our freedom of religion. I, I don't think he's in a position to try to prevent Muslims from um, exercising the um, uh, freedom of worship that are that's guaranteed by uh, the First Amendment. So I view it more as a politician doing something that's extremely uh, dumb. Uh, and it does have a consequence, but in this case, I don't think it's any threat uh, to the exercise of First Amendment rights in the United States. It affects our ability to conduct uh, foreign policy uh, particularly in, uh, to the extent that it involves and necessitates the cooperation of Muslim uh, nations. It also, from a political standpoint, 
uh, reduces Trump's ability to expand his support beyond his hardcore uh, base, but he seems to have utterly no interest in doing that. Does that not give cover, though, to people that have a racist or anti-Islamic to expand on that? And they're talking about like Breitbart Media, or is this risking growing that movement and, I don't know, just distorting the way we talk about religion or, you know, if, if you're, if you are a Muslim, are you at greater risk because the president of the United States is in, maybe encouraging people um, in their fear of Muslims? I, I, I think that is um, exaggerating the point of the tweet or the consequence of the tweet. I mean, he was trying to um, highlight uh, the danger of uh, Islamist uh, terrorism and uh, violence. He did so in a stupid way um, by uh, retweeting a video from a uh, fringe uh, nationalist uh, group in Britain um, without checking to see the source and whether it was uh, credible. But I think the threat, the, the fear that uh, Trump would be an authoritarian that would trample on the separation of powers uh, that um, protects our freedoms uh, has been proven to be unwarranted. And I don't, I, I believe the people who hold uh, racist views in the United States uh, and are willing to act on those views are now a very small fringe, and uh, to focus on them misses where the United States is today and the remarkable progress with respect to race relations we've made during my lifetime. I definitely agree, agree with you on that. Um, I would, I think it's maybe too early to say that that has not succeeded or has not become an authoritarian. It's only it's been a year. And not, you know, not to give in to all of the fear mongering about Trump, but to erode the erosion of values, the erosion of of trust in in media, um, the attacks in the press, these attacks on he's already attacked pretty fiercely, you know, immigrant immigrant groups and and stuff like that. This. The, the erosion, I think, is dangerous. Erosion uh, in trust in traditional media uh, well precedes Trump. Uh, and I believe the uh, unobjective coverage of Trump uh, has contributed to a further erosion from that. Um, I don't think that all of Trump's reaction to the way he's treated by the traditional media is unwarranted. Um, a lot of it is. I mean, he, he, he can make up his own reality uh, and does. Um, but um, I think it is fair for many people to conclude uh, that uh, the traditional media treats him unfairly and he's not going to get a fair shake, uh, which 
is part of what he uses to justify uh, his extensive use of social media in ways that are unprecedented from a president of the United States, and in my judgment, aren't appropriate uh, to the dignity of that office. And perhaps tapping into some pent-up anger in his base that he tapped into somehow as well. I want to go back to kind of a a little bit of a historical track to his to his nomination <clears throat> because I think it's important to look at how people responded to him then, how people responded to him before they knew. I mean, he was a joke when he first was was announcing and no one took him seriously. And so let's just reflect a little bit on how people responded to him and maybe looking back now how they could have responded differently because he started out with into the political scene, almost like a your classic troll. He is espousing the birtherism from from the very beginning, but got Trump or excuse me, got Obama to talk about him and at his uh, poked uh, jokes at him at the White House Correspondents Dinner. Um, kind of like classic, kind of like he trolled a response to the highest level. People talking about him, which has kind of been his his whole you know his whole spiel from from the beginning of his professional life. Then his first his first announcement was calling Mexicans rapists, which was just... <clears throat> I, again, I think that's a exaggeration. He said that some of the immigrants uh, were. Now, I don't defend the, the statement, but but I think it's, we, we need to be careful about how we characterize what he said and when he said it. And he didn't call all Mexican immigrants, rapists. He said some of them, I assume, maybe are good people, but he said the people the people that Mexico is sending across the border are not the best people. They're rapists. Um, and it, in, any, in any case, um, whatever his intent or the way he said it, it was inflammatory, extremely inflammatory. And I know that people that were immigrants themselves or family members of immigrants were um, incensed by that. Then he proceeds another troll move uh, attacking McCain as being not a war hero. Um, But he used his tactics, which had an early lead in the polls, um, but people responded to him kind of like being dismissive of him and almost like annoyed that he gets so much coverage and but everyone had to cover him because he was so interesting and people were wanting to, to hear what he would say next and then the early debates, there was like 15 Republicans and that were trying to become president. But in the early debates, they kind of ignored him at first and, and tried to talk around him. And then when he started to win a little bit, they tried to attack back a little bit. Romney came in, gave his big speech, uh, saying this person is not fit to be in office. Our uh, representatives, our leaders here in Arizona responded differently. McCain kept his distance, um, but later endorsed him. Uh, he endorsed Trump when he won the nomination. Doug Ducey endorsed him, and then he also appeared at a campaign rally for for Trump. Uh, Flake did not endorse him, never did. He kept saying that he was kind of waiting. He kept saying, I'm waiting for Trump to switch tones. I'm hoping he's, he changes his tone. He kept saying that eventually he started his kind of more serious attacks and, and things like that. So... I guess in, in hindsight, a lot of Republicans wish they had a more traditional candidate. Um, I see it as almost like a hijacking of, of the party by Trump. Um, would they do anything differently now, looking backwards? Did they? What mistakes did they make 
in allowing Trump to rise and be the be the representative of his party. Well, Trump captured something um, that it would have been difficult for uh, any of his challengers to capture. Um, it wasn't a hijacking. Um, he got more votes than anybody else. That's the way you decide who the nominee uh, is going to be. And there was a deep desire among Republican primary voters for someone who would shake things up in Washington, D.C. And Trump captured that uh, better uh, and more thoroughly than any other potential candidate. Now, he also benefited uh, from the fact that there were so many uh, traditional uh, Republican uh, candidates in the race. And he benefited from, in my judgment, uh, missteps that Jeb Bush uh, made, who was potentially the front runner, someone who could have narrowed the field uh, quickly if he had done better in the early primaries. Uh, he uh, allowed Trump to get under his skin and throw him off his game plan. His game plan was to run as a uh, sunny, Reagan-esque uh, optimist, talking about um, the good things that could be done uh, for the country while we kept together. Uh, Trump uh got him off that game, got him to attack Trump, uh, which wasn't being sunny and optimistic and a unifying force. Now, it very well may have been that the mood of the Republican electorate wasn't for a dynasty for the third Bush as a nominee of the party. It might not have worked. Uh, but if there was someone who could have stopped Trump, uh, it was probably Jeb Bush, and uh, I think that he made strategic errors. But we should not – I still think the primary reason Trump became the nominee is that he captured better than anyone else and embodied better than anyone else a deep desire by Republican primary voters for someone who would really shake things up in Washington, D.C., I guess the reason I'm, I think of it as a hijacking myself is just the image of everyone was so scared that, not that he was going to win, but that he was going to run as an independent and screw it up for the person that won. And there's that image that always sticks in my head of if you win the nomination, will you, or if you don't win the nomination, will you support the eventual winner? Um, and Trump was the only one there raising his hand saying he would not commit to, to supporting the eventual winner. And um, well, well, certainly <clears throat> Trump, and not you know, he could have he could have easily run as a Democrat. But, you know, he does. He's not himself. You know, have the same philosophy. You know, it, it seems to me that he's in it for himself, and it was just the most convenient thing for him to to use this vehicle to you know spout out and take advantage. Well, I I do think in terms of his uh, economic nationalism and foreign policy isolationism, although he's not acted on the latter uh, as president, he's behaved far differently as president than he 
said he would on the campaign trail. Um, that has been part of the Republican tradition. Pat Buchanan ran on uh, that basically very same platform in the 1990s and uh, got a third of the Republican uh, vote uh, in two different uh, presidential cycles. So that, e that has been uh, traditionally a minority strand uh, among the various flavors of ideological thought that comprise the Republican Party. I think I don't think that his becoming the nominee indicates that those things have become the majority view. Um, but they had a root in the Republican Party, and I think that wanting someone that would really shake up Washington, D.C. did reflect a majority view. Another, another aspect of Trump that is confusing to me, it's confusing a lot of people, is how nothing seems to stick. They call him Teflon Don. And I'll just give one example of how ridiculous this, this is to me. Is about a month before, after the election, a month before he was inaugurated, he settled a $25 million fraud settlement about Trump University. And I haven't heard anything about that in the last four months. And it seems like for any other candidate, that would be the attack, the thing that would stick with someone. You ripped off a bunch of people trying to get an education, and you had to pay a $25 million fraud settlement. And that's just, I mean, no one even remembers that. Because there's so many things that, uh, you know, that get talked about and, and, and fire people up as, as being outrageous. And so... I guess, and he's famously said, "I can, you know, go on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone dead, and wouldn't it wouldn't uh, wouldn't affect my numbers." Right now, he's got thirty eight percent approval rate, according to five thirty eight. Um, he's had some big failures on legislation. Um, we don't know the outcome of the tax um, of the tax bill as we're recording this, um, but um, I mean, his main promise was to get a to get a wall built i guess my question on, the, on this point is like do the rules of politics apply to trump how come none of these things stick to him how, how was he able to survive all these what would be damning things to any other candidate i don't have a wholly adequate answer uh, to that uh, here are some things that i think are part of the answer um he has uh, paid a political price uh, for all those things and a dozen others that you could mention. Uh, it is why he has historically low um, approval ratings for a um, president at this point in time in their office. Uh, he has pretty well destroyed his ability to expand his political base and his political base was pretty narrow to begin with it was sufficient uh, to win the republican nomination it was sufficient to win and narrow uh, electoral majority uh, but he did lose the popular vote and the shift of uh, 20 
thousand votes or so in in three different states would have changed the electoral college outcome. Um, so I do think that he has paid a price. I don't think that he is Teflon Don. But on the other hand, he does not play by the conventional political rules. Um, he just uh, plays by his own rules, uh, reaching his base supporters through his own mechanisms and uh, engaging in his political uh, uh, MO of attack, 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 attack. And other politicians confronting these same things would feel a sense of shame, be a little sheepish, uh, feel as though they needed to apologize uh, to the extent politicians um, pretend to apologize. Uh, and uh, in some way accommodate uh, the overwhelming sentiment outside of his base. Uh, he feels none of those sentiments. He feels none of those compulsions. So if he defines his political objective as keeping his base loyal to him and believing that his enemies are treating him unfairly, you can say that he succeeded in that. But that's a fairly narrow victory. It's, it doesn't put you in a position to well-govern the country, and it doesn't necessarily put you in a good position to win re-election. And it's not necess- you don't see it as changing the, the rules of politics or other people are going to start mimicking the strategy. Do you think it's kind of particular to his style and his personality? His total indifference... Um, to political convention, uh, I think is unique to him. I, I don't think, I mean, you, you see it in conservative talk show hosts, uh, but I don't think you're going to see it as the new style of Republican uh, candidates running uh, for office. My suspicion is that they will mostly come out of the old mode and while there's a belief that the traditional media don't give Republicans a fair shake in general, uh, there's not a total indifference uh, or hostility to what occurs there that you see in Trump. Let's transition to then how you, de- how you defeat him. It's too early for me to talk about 2020, but 2018 is right around the corner. So let's look at how some people have been Position themselves in the age of Trump to to seek re-election or election, and there's a there's a story this this week in the Arizona Republic um, by Eliza Collins about Kirsten Cinema. Uh, she's running for uh, Senate as a Democrat uh, for Jeff Flake's uh, vacated Senate seat, and she said that the headline was Trump. She says Trump is not a thing in Arizona. And basically her strategy is she's planning on just not, not running as the Trump opposer, not making the election a referendum on Trump. Um, she's not going to try to pin her opponents down by their positions on Trump. She just kind of pitch her, pitch her views. And, um, even said at one point, she, it's not about party that she'd even be willing to work with Trump uh, a little bit. So, 
What do you think about that strategy for cinema? I think for a Democrat in Arizona, it is the right strategy. Um, and I think it's also, re- I, I don't think it's a completely calculated one uh, by Representative Cinema. I think it represents the way that she's behaved in, in Congress um, all along. I, however, I believe that she is going to be swamped, and that won't be what the 2018 senatorial election in Arizona will be about. Uh, the Democrats want to turn this election into a referendum on Trump because of the approval ratings that you cited and that he is a great turnout factor for the Democratic base. Um, and I suspect that there will be uh, millions of uh, dollars in outside independent expenditures that will flood into Arizona from the Democratic side that will all be national copycat ads um, denouncing Trump and trying to turn it into a referendum on Trump. So I think that cinema's likely to be swamped uh, by her own side, even though I think she has, for a Democrat, the sounder strategy of how to prevail in 2018. Trump won Arizona. He won it by um, a, a far smaller margin than uh, Republican candidates usually do, but he did win the state, and he won the state with an electorate that would that was less Republican uh, than the 2018 off-presidential uh, electorate is likely to be. So I think Cinema is right, but I don't think she's going to be given the opportunity to frame the campaign the way that she would like to because of what her side will do uh, with um, large-scale independent expenditures. That's interesting to see how that, that will play out. It, to me, paying attention to some some conversations on, on, on the left, it seemed like their kind of autopsy of the 2016 election is we need to be more positive in pitching what we're, what we're going to do with our plans and not just being the no, the no Trump, anti-Trump, Trump's racist, just don't let anyone but Trump. It seemed like they were going to try to pitch more to framing. Well, there on is the a belief that, that Hillary Clinton did not um, adequately articulate a vision for the country, that she was too many position paper points and, and it just didn't stitch together in into an overall uh, message. But I believe that Trump's general unpopularity uh, will um, just be too rich a target uh, for uh, Democrats uh, to not try to take advantage of. And you, you saw what happened in Virginia, where it was believed that anti-Trump sentiment uh, not only decided the governor's race, uh, but also had a huge influence on um, state house races um, for for the legislature. So uh, the message Democrats got from at least th- that election uh, was uh, anti-Trump sells and sells well and turns out our voters. You do you see cinema sticking to that? 
philosophy or do you think she'll end up getting kind of pulled into, I mean, you got to at least talk about Trump, I'd imagine. I, I think she, with the resources that she controls, uh, will stick to that s- strategy, uh, both because I think it's a sounder strategy and because I think it more is more reflective of who she is. I've described her as one of the few um, practitioners of cheerful politics uh, in the state or the country. It's, it is genuinely who she is. It, that will be sorely tested in a statewide senatorial race. Uh, but, as I said, I think that there will be a great deal of money uh, invested in this is a referendum on Trump, vote for cinema because she's a Democrat and she's not Trump. Yeah. I mean, just we, we can talk about the quite. I'm going to finish this segment just with a quote she says about party. Um, and we don't have to talk about the role of political parties, maybe for another another topic. But this was just refreshing to me to hear from a politician. The quote in the article was, it's not about a party. It never is about a party. It's about putting people ahead of party. I don't think party matters much to people. Well, a Democrat uh, running in a state uh, <laughs> in which Republicans will be uh, a larger percentage of the turnout uh, by about 12 percentage points uh, doesn't have much option except <laughs> to say that and to hope that it proves true. Hopefully it is true for for her. Um well, let's finish with a question about presidents and media. FDR was known as for his fireside chats on the on the radio. I would say that Reagan was the TV president, um, and definitely Trump is the Twitter. Will be known for his use of Twitter. Uh, what question for you? What? Which historical politician do you think would have used Twitter most effectively? I guess I can say which American president would have used it least effectively, <laughs> uh, which would be Calvin Coolidge. Uh, the old joke about Calvin, Calvin Coolidge is that he was at a dinner one time, uh, and um, a woman at the dinner table said, I've got a bet with my husband. Uh, he says that you won't say uh, three words all evening. And Calvin Coolidge reportedly replied, and something that I think is probably apocryphal, you lose. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would, that would fit in the old tweet, 140-character tweet. <laughs> <clears throat> um, well, thank you very much for listening. Actually, I someone said in a tweet somewhere, that's where I got the idea from, that they thought Benjamin Franklin would be a good would be good on Twitter. Um, but he'd, he'd be good point. on anything. Yeah. He, he certainly uh, would be king of the quip, uh, but he didn't have the nastiness that seems to be key to success on Twitter. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for, for listening, tuning in this week to the Political Notebook. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play Music or whatever app you, you have on, on your phone. Also, if you want to, if you want to support the political notebook, tell a friend, think of someone you might enjoy a, uh, conversation, um, about, about politics. And 
We hope to see you next week.